Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 10, featuring Travis Rossback, talking about how he created the Hydro Flask and what he is up to now with the Tumalo Group. I picked up a lot of guerrilla marketing techniques in Oahu, and I would literally would show up at a, a trade show, and I would get all of the security Hydro Flask t-shirts, and I would give them four free t-shirts for four days of trade show. And they would wear them. <laughs> In fact, we got to the point where we would print security on the front and hydro flask on the uh, shoulder and then hydro flask and security on the back and they would wear them. So everybody thought we were uh, sponsoring the, the event. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Yes, today has spent the last 30 years studying his entrepreneurial skills. Throughout the previous 10 years, he's been proud to introduce sourcing, advising, consulting, public speaking, and business coaching to his expertise. His clients include a wide range of industries, celebrities, individuals, and even countries. He not only shares his tradecraft with others, but also practices it in the many startups in which he is currently involved. He is the founder of Hydroflask and several other highly successful business endeavors, Besides entrepreneurship, he's a scuba dive master and instructor, a U.S. merchant marine boat captain, commercial airline pilot, and my personal favorite, long-standing world explorer. Without further ado, Travis Rossback. Hey, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being on here. Can you bring take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro, bring us up to speed with where you're at now and what's going on in your world? Boy, I got a lot. Basically, yeah, after Hydroflask, I I tried very successfully to just kind of be retired and just kind of stay away from business for a while. And that lasted about, oh, probably about two years or so. And I had a lot of people just asking for help with their businesses or trying to start a startup and trying to start sourcing products from other countries and, and even here domestically. And I, I, I realized that I just, I missed business too much and I was having too much fun. So I, I started the Tumalo group and uh, started helping people at, at any and all phases of their business. So just a design concept on the back of an envelope to highly successful Fortune 500 companies that are looking to expand their product lines. And so I do that a fair bit. And then the rest of the time I've got some property and I've got a four-year-old daughter and like this week, we just bought a swimming pool, so we're trying to learn how to set up swimming pools. Awesome. I'm sure you'll be successful. Oh, thank you. I hope so. It's, it's a little challenging, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think if, if I remember, if, if it's an above ground, it seems like you've got to have multiple people at different ends of the pool to get it stabilized. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I actually, I want to bury it and put these huge cinder concrete blocks all around it and then build a deck. But I don't know, that might be a bit too ambitious for this weekend. <laughs> yeah, depends on what, you, what, what kind of equipment you've got. If you got a backhoe, you're golden. That is exactly what I found. It really comes down to having the right equipment. And without the right equipment, it is challenging. And with the right equipment, it's quick and easy and, and a lot of fun. <laughs> But you get sometimes you get better stories when you don't have the right equipment. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. A lot more memories. Okay. And I've done some research on you, but I, I want to ask this anyway. Do you come from an entrepreneurial background? Did anyone in your family have their own business as you were growing up? I know you had indicated that your dad did. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I did not meet my dad until I was 14. And uh, I flew down to the U.S. Virgin Islands from Salem, Oregon to go and meet with him and, and stay with him for a little while. He had a, a couple, few dive shops that I got to really learn the insides and out of running businesses fairly well and fairly poorly at the same time. It was a very diverse economy in, in St. Croix. And so we got to see the good, the bad, and the, a lot of the ugly. 
And then when I was probably about 16 or so, maybe 15, my mom started a daycare out back. We had a, a very large building out back that she turned into a daycare. And she did her best to run that business. And yet I remember a lot of times her not getting paid from the clients or she had let the children stay you know, well after dinner hour. And she would bend over backwards to take care of her customers or, or clients. And so I kind of, I got to learn from that too, that a point at which enough is enough and you have to say no, but also you, you want to take care of your customers. And so those were kind of my two entrepreneurial in the family uh, businesses. I, I also was very fortunate enough to have, it was fortunate for me. Unfortunately, my, my neighbor died when I was about 12 and I got to go in. He, his sister was having a, an estate sale. And she said, you can have whatever you like in here. And I saw this big bookshelf and I was like, I didn't know what it was or I didn't know what the books were. But I, I, for some reason, I just had to have that bookshelf. And it turned out to have a lot of the great business leaders of the 80s and 90s, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar, uh, Jim Rohn, Dale Carnegie, on and on, a lot of those books. And so the rainy winters in Salem, I would just pour through these books and just absorb as much entrepreneurial insight from the masters as I could possibly stand. And then when I was 18, I, I moved down to the USVI to live full time and started running the dive shops. My dad just took off and, and, and handed me the keys and the money bag. So that's kind of how I got into it. And the, and the shotgun, too. That was the other thing I needed to know where it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think you had indicated at one point that you got robbed while you were down there. Yeah, we the, the dive shop would get robbed quite a bit. Luckily, not while I was physically there. I've been shot at a couple times down there. And we, we, we walked in many mornings where the alarm, for whatever reason, did not go off. And we'd been robbed. A lot of times around hurricanes, we'd have to stay 24-7 on the premise and, and, and keep intruders at bay. My dad just about got shot. It, it literally grazed right past his ear one day that was scary but yeah it was wild west those things that you don't think about when you're pondering going to the virgin islands or st croix and just wouldn't have wouldn't have thought that was going on well, and i hate to deter people from going down there because for tourists for the most part depending on the time of the year and, and and how the economy is doing it can be a very fun safe place obviously you have to keep your wits about you but unfortunately, the downside is that when there's no real tourism, no real industry, the, the people go out, they need to eat. So they do what they need to do. I read a story or heard a story that you negotiated your way out of high school. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Because <laughs> if anybody is on this call, I should have been the one doing that. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I wasn't a real big fan of school. I knew very early on that I wanted to be down in the Virgin Islands and I wanted to be under the water and on top of the water and up and flying in the sky. And I, I did not really want to spend a lot of time in the, the Salem-Kaiser Public School District. And my grades reflected that. I, I spent very little time at high school, especially my junior and senior year. And so when they finally said, Travis, graduation's in June and you're not going to be there, I basically let them know that wasn't the best solution for either them nor myself and that we needed to figure something else out. And about three weeks later, we, we figured it out and I snuck by with just a quarter of a credit or just the very, very minimal 0.1 credit over the line, just enough to get me out. So that was probably the biggest, greatest negotiation of my life. Really. I did not want to go back and, and do that again. <laughs> it's probably a good thing that we did not know each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could, have been, could have been a lot of trouble. Yes. Switching gears just a little bit, how'd you get into the aviation and, and becoming a pilot? It was a strange thing. I, a lot of times I say that it just hits me in the back of the head and it comes out my mouth. What, whatever's going to come next, I'll just say it and I'll think, oh, shoot, Travis, what'd you just say? And who, who heard you? Because you're going to, somebody's listening. And I, that's kind of how aviation was. I was a boat captain and I just, I loved being up on top of the water and reading my books. And then I'd go be a dive instructor for a while or a dive master for a while and go under the water. And I was kind of playing those three roles for a while. 
And, but I kept seeing the seaplanes fly in and they would land in the harbor and then they'd take off and they'd fly off to an unknown destination. And I just thought, wow, how cool is that? And I'd been working on a yacht. I was the first mate on a yacht and I didn't like the captain. And yet the captain wanted me to take over and be the next captain. And I said, no, I quit. The money was awesome. But I just, what my heart wasn't into it. I just didn't want to work with him and I didn't really want to do that anymore. So I was walking off the, the, down the dock and I thought, damn it, what did I just do? I just passed up six figure income at, you know, the age of 22 or so. What have I done? What am I going to do next? And then uh, a seaplane flew over and I said, I'm going to go be a pilot. And my girlfriend at the time, she laughed and then wrote it off as, yeah, Travis, whatever. And um, sure enough, six months later, I was up in Oregon and I was in flight school and 9-11 happened and we got shut down, but I was a pilot. And so I begged, borrowed and, and, and borrowed some more to, to go become a pilot. That's awesome. What was your first actual business uh- was it Hydroflask or was it something before? I had a, yeah, um, I had a, a partner in, in Florida that we started as a, a real estate investment company. It was right before, probably around 2004, 2005, when the housing market was doing really well and people were making money overnight. Unfortunately, the other half of the people were losing their houses and they were losing money overnight. And so we started a, a real estate investment company to go in and help buy those houses before they would go into foreclosure and help their credit, hopefully, and give them some cash to go stand on their feet again. And it wasn't real successful. We didn't do very well at it. And I didn't like the idea of having, it felt kind of predatory. It felt kind of, like, hey, your house is worth 200. Let me give you 80. Like, I just, it, you, it just didn't feel right to me. So I, we didn't do that very long. Decided to move back home to Bend, Oregon and moved back and started a fence company. There was a, a guy building a fence in the backyard at one of the rentals I was in. And I went out and started talking to him and I just became, you know, interested in how this, how do you dig a hole in rock and put in a metal post and then put up this beautiful fence. And next thing I knew, we had one of the largest fence companies in Central Oregon. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Okay. So how did you how did you learn about that? Did you was this a Google type thing or? No, we didn't have much Google back then. And if we did, I just wasn't real privy to it. This is probably about 2005, 2006. So I, Google was out. It just wasn't on my phone. <laughs> Hot bot or Alta Vista then? Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the what happened, what I, so I was talking to this guy who was putting in the fence and it was just beautiful. There was no knots. It was clear cedar. And I said, well, are you doing all these subdivisions that are going in? And they said, no, we're just doing one house at a time and real small company. I said, why don't you do the, the big subdivisions? And he said, well, the owner just doesn't want to do that. He, he likes to keep it small and real you know, niche. I said, how hard could it be? I think I'll go do that. And so, famous last words, went up to Portland and found a fence supply store and just walked in and we just sold a house in Florida. So we had a little bit of cash, not a lot, but a little bit. And we, we said, what do we need to start a, a fence company? Just go get your stuff and come up and ring it out. We'll ring you out. And I said, no, I don't know what I need. I need you to tell me and teach me. And so they they couldn't believe it, but we walked out of there with a bunch of a bunch of fence stuff and came home and got on Craigslist and said, hey, we're looking to help hire fence builders, really experienced fence builders, and found a few guys. And one in particular was really well experienced. He'd worked at the competitions, the, comp- the competitor for quite a while, and he was supposed to be really good. And so we were real excited to hire him. And the day before our first job, he got arrested again and went back to prison. And we went down to the homeless shelter and picked up some homeless guys, went to the library, got some VHS cassettes on how to build a fence, went to the pawn shop and and bought a a VHS cassette tape player or or the VHS players. 
And we sat in the living room with, with three homeless guys watching how to build fences. And that's, unfortunately, we learned how to build wooden fences. Our first job was a metal fence. I just, I kept calling the guy in Portland and saying, hey, what do I do? And he says, just wrap that around there and bend it once. I said, okay, bend it once or twice. Because it in the picture, it looks like twice. No, just do it once. So yeah, we just taught ourselves. And then luckily, yeah, I started finding more people who had more experience. We kept hiring better and better experienced people. That guy got out of jail, and, and of course, we brought him on, <laughs> and uh, he taught me quite a bit, and then he went back to jail and, and, and never saw him again. But it, yeah, it was a lot of hard work, but it was it was good work. It was good outdoor, healthy, digging in the rocks and dirt. And it was good. In, in my 20s, I, I wouldn't do that now, but, but then it was really good. So how did this kind of prepare you for starting Hydroflask, or, or did it? Yeah, all of the businesses, I we went from that over to Oahu and had a sign and screen printing uh, company that we learned a lot about, about agencies. We worked with, we printed for a lot of agencies and graphic designers. And so all of the other business experience that, that I had, and not to mention the whole library of books that I'd read, I think the whole thing just accumulated into Hydroflask. It go into the chamber of commerce type meetings and how to hobnob and rub shoulders and elbows or, or whatever the phrase and saying is, but doing all of that with defense company was very helpful. Learning how to do contracts and negotiate sales and deal with happy clients and, and very unhappy clients. And then this, this the sign company in Oahu stepped up another little bit of a notch. And now we were dealing with pretty big corporations that we were printing for. And so all of it just kind of, I don't think you can ever be too ready or too prepared for the big time. Everything that I'd learned that far helped. Yeah. So walk us through the moment that you came up with the idea for Hydroflask and how you executed it. The first, the first time that it really hit me was, okay, I back up a little bit. There was a, it was multiple pronged, like it, it came to me in different segments. The first time it came was at the sign company, I got a magazine that was advertising a cylindrical screen printer. So a a printer that could do a full wrap around an aluminum bottle was how it was advertised. And you could do one at a time. It was very slow and tedious. But when I saw the the picture of it, the ad, something just went off in my head that I, I don't, I can't explain, but something just told me there's something here. So I told my brother, he was in, in Oahu at the time as well. I said, Hey, Jeff, Hey, here's a great idea. Maybe you should start a water bottle company. And he, he was too busy with his girlfriend and their sailboat and, and chasing dolphins and going snorkeling and stuff. And so he, 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 you know, said no. And I forgot all about it. And then one day I was thirsty. I was downtown Honolulu dropping off some supplies. And I went into the sporting goods store to buy a water bottle. And there was this huge big wall where the bottles were and they were gone. There was only about two or three left. And I said, what happened to all these bottles? And the guy said, well, there's this thing. We're not really sure what it is. The owners are French. And they saw an article that came out in Europe about this stuff. We don't know what it's called, but it's in plastic. Later, we found out BPA. Not real safe, not real good. So as a preliminary, precautionary, precautionary, what, what's the next word that I have to, I should use after the word precautionary? Tell? No, not tell. Precautionary. As a precaution. I guess that's probably the more accurate <laughs> precaution. Sorry. We've taken all these bottles off. And, and I said, who's going to replace this wall of bottles? And the guy said, nobody, there's nobody else to, to, to make water bottles. And it, again, it hit me in the back of the head right here and it came out my mouth. And I said, I will, I'll do that. And he laughed at me. And the amount of time in between me saying it and him laughing at me, I saw the future, which was amazing. It was, it was wild. Like I saw myself talking 10 years later about these water bottles at a university or a, you know, a campus. And, and so I went back to the dive or to the sign shop and I said, Hey, tell me about water bottles. I asked the employees and the first one said, there's this aluminum brand. You need to get it. It's the best in the world. So I went out and bought it and it was awful. It, 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 for a multitude of reasons and it had BPA in it and so on and so forth. I talked to my brother. 
Was that the mythical snow creature? It was. Uh, no, it, it was. It was a Swedish brand called Sig, and uh, they've since pretty much gone by the wayside. But they were the best on the market at the time. I talked to my my brother in in Bend, and he said, "No, you got to get this single wall stainless steel one called KK brand." Okay, great. So I got one of those and tried it out and it got real hot and I would go surf and I would pick up my bottle and take a swig and it would just be too hot to drink, which kind of defeated the purpose of bringing water with. And so I thought, there's got to be a better way. And then about a year and a half later, figured out how to do Hydro Flask. It, it took quite a while. Yeah. I can imagine now. You know, how did you know that you had come up with the the right idea at the time, or and didn't go off and focus on something else? That's a good question, Greg. I think that I wanted it. I wanted to see if it was possible, and I wanted it for myself. And I kind of—it's not that I didn't care if anybody bought them or not, but I, I thought even if I could just make a couple for myself and my friends and family, that'd be cool. And when we got the samples, we got the first couple prototypes, we drove around the island taking a lot of photos and everybody who held them or posed for the photos was just blown away. They could instantly recognize that was something that they would use and, and want. But then, yeah, when we went to market and we would start getting a lot of fan mail and people would come up to me at the fairs or street events that we would do and, and give their praise for the product. It, it felt really good, and it gave us a lot of uh, incentive to keep going. Let's talk about some of the earlier early challenges you had. Because at one time, I, kn- I know that you had three employees, and they were called, actually four, Travis, me, myself, and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened quite a few times, actually, that uh, the four of us would hang out. Yeah, there were, it was one of those classic We didn't have much money to pay employees, and so the money that we did have, we got that sort of employee. Like from the fence days, I was really honestly accustomed to going to the homeless shelter and picking up strong, hardworking men that we could give them cash and they could, you know, do an honest day's labor for us. And with Hydro Flask, I I still had that sort of kind of mentality. So we we found some pretty interesting people in the early days, and it. It was a multitude of challenges from China and shipping and logistics. My partner kept, it would get too difficult for her. So she would leave and she would abandon ship and and, and take off. And we got 40,000 rusted and potentially rusted non-insulated water bottles. And yeah, on and on. (laughs) Imagine the float alone could be a little bit of a nightmare. You you got bailed out at one point by a, a friend. I believe it was a friend that had, had gave you a significant cash infusion. Yeah, we started out with friends and family. And it was friends, family, and a lot of credit cards and a lot of personal loans and loans against the vehicles that we were leasing. And like any way that we could get money to buy more bottles, we would. And that was something that I didn't ever really prepare for or think about. It was nothing that Brian Tracy ever talked about or anything I'd ever read in any of my books. But you can become too successful and too successful too quickly as well. And at that time, as it is by and large still today, but at that time with China, you needed to put up 50% deposit at the beginning of the order to make the order and then 50% just before it ships. And the bottles at that time were, and they're still about $4.25 to $5 a bottle. But you times that by 10,000, it adds up. You times it by 40,000, which is a 40-foot container, and it gets pretty expensive pretty quick. And then when they sell, they go out to the retail locations, usually have about a net 30, some had net 60. And so we wouldn't see cash coming in for 90 to 120 days after we'd have to pay for it. And when we we started doing 40,000 bottles a month, it was just ridiculous. And we also had a, a very high caliber workforce and employees at that time. We built a little family around the, the, the brand 
And of course, they always got paid first and foremost. And a lot of them that were there in those early days are still there with the company, which is great. But yeah, we would would have to pay we'd have to pay China, and then we'd have to pay the employees and the the lease and 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 yeah, one day we got down to you know zero basically, and it was a Wednesday afternoon, and we had no more money, and we had some bottles in the back, but not enough to really you know, propel us forward. And which was really unfortunate because we just opened up a, a lot of predominantly outdoor industry retail stores. And I wrote up this sort of, I'm sorry, we're, I'm going to have to let you guys go. We've run out of money. And I was literally drafting the letter and I was probably crying my eyes out. And the, the woman up front at the front desk called and said, Travis, there's a man here to see you. And I said, what's he here for? And she said, he just says that he needs to meet you right now. And I said, if he's a debt collector, just send him away. I don't have any money. Let him go, please. She called back and said, no, there's something about this guy who he just, he says he's got to meet you. He wants to work here. I said, oh, okay. In that case, just tell him, no, we're not hiring. And I thought that was it. And she called back the third time and said, he's persistent. He wants to meet with you, Travis, the founder of Hydroflask. I said, all right, fine. And I came forward and his name was Charlie and he came in and we sat down and he tells me what a great salesperson he is and how he wants to work at the company. And he lives in Bend and this and that and the other. And I, I said, you know, I'm sorry, we're just not hiring. 15, 20 minutes later, back and forth, I'm telling him, no, Charlie, no. Finally, he says, why will you not hire me? And I said, I'm going to tell you the honest truth. I'm closing the doors on Friday. And this was Wednesday. And he said, why? And I said, because we don't have any money. We don't have enough money to pay for the next round of bottles. And he says, well, how much do you need? I said, a million dollars. How's that? And he says, so if I got you a million dollars by Friday, could I start on Monday? <laughs> I just was like, okay, I got to get this guy out of here. Yes, sure, Charlie. You go get us a million dollars and you can go ahead and start on Monday. And so he left. I was like, oh, thank God I got him out of my, out of my office because that was a little scary. The guy was maybe a little crazy. Friday morning, I get a call. Just as I'm rehearsing my speech to go tell everybody, I get a call that somebody else was there to come and see me. And I, same thing. I don't want to see anybody right now. No, thank you. He says he's got a meeting with you this morning. I thought, well, shoot, maybe I missed something. Okay, fine. Went in, sat down with him. And he said, yeah, Charlie told me that you guys are looking for an investor. And I said, well, I don't really know what that means, but I know we need bottles. And he says, well, how much do you need? And I said, 800, you know, or it was like, I think we needed like 88,475 bottles or something like that to oh, just over two shipping containers. And, and he says, okay, what's that financially? A million bucks. He says, okay. We went over a few little things and, but he wrote a check right then and there. And I, I still kept thinking, no, this is just not real. This is not how real life works. I, I don't believe this. So I went down on my lunch break before I told everybody that we're fired. I went down to the bank and gave her the check, expecting her to laugh. And she says, okay, it's cleared. I said, what does that mean? It cleared. And she goes, the money is in your account. I said, but what does that mean? Like how much money? She says, the full million, it's in your account. We went from like $400 to a million bucks, <laughs> just that quick. And I went back and shredded the letter and Monday Charlie started and he's still there with the company. <laughs> that, that's amazing. Did your employees ever know how close that you were, you were to closing? No, I, I withheld all of that. Those early days, there were so many roller coasters. I literally had my garbage can repossessed because I personally was out of money, but they were being paid and we were ordering bottles. So I withheld most all of the hardships from them, or at least I tried to. Yeah. How, how long did it take before you started getting knocked off? Unfortunately, it was actually pretty quick. I, it was actually, it's just an interesting story. I was down at REI and I would do these kind of like recon trips to sporting goods stores that we wanted to be in. And I'd walk in and say, Hey, do you have hydro flask? And I'd go and ask as many people as possible and they'd say, no, we've never heard of it. And I'd say, you've never heard of Hydroflask? Huh, okay, I guess I'll go across town to your competition. And then eventually that store would call me and say, hey, we need to get Hydroflask. Everybody's asking for it. 
So I was on one of my, you know, afternoon trips to REI to do that. And the woman who was helping me, she said, she says, no, we don't have them, but I have one. And I just absolutely love it. It's the best product I own, not just water bottle, but product. It's my favorite thing I own. I said, oh, great. Where'd you buy it? And she said, oh, my screen printer gave it to me. I said, oh, who's your screen printer? And she said, the guy's name, his name's Nicholas. And I said, huh, okay, that's strange. And I had a cell phone, so I called the office and I said, do we have an account with Nicholas at this printing company? They said, no, he does our printing, but he doesn't have an account to sell them. And I said, and so I, I asked her, I'm like, what does your bottle say on it? She says, it has my other, she had a company. She says, it has my company name on it. And he screwed up on our, our t-shirts. And so he gave us a bunch of free bottles with our logo on it instead. I said, oh, okay, great. And I didn't tell her, but I left and I walked straight into Nicholas's office or his, his place of business. It was literally two doors down from us. And I walked in, walked behind the counter And he had basically stole a bunch of bottles from us. We'd give him a key so he could come in the back door and pick up bottles. We trusted him. He said he was a good guy and we thought he was a good guy and very naive. But yeah, he knocked us off. And not only at first he started stealing the hydro flasks. And when I caught him that day, I told him on certain terms that that wasn't going to be happening anymore. And then about two weeks later, it came out, or maybe not two weeks, I don't really know time, maybe two months later, he came out with his own brand that was an identical knockoff. And so with that, we were able to send the attorneys over to, to deal with him. And so that was the first, that was the first time. And then it went on from there all the way up to big knockoffs. The guy who walked into uh, Costco actually had a hydro flask and he put a piece of duct tape over it. Uh, to go into his meeting with Hydro or with uh, Costco, and said, "Hey, look, I got this great bottle, and I'll sell it to you cheaper than Hydro Flask will." And Costco said, "Okay." And so uh, that's how his knockoff company started, and they're still going strong. They changed the name, but but they're still knocking them off. So yeah. Now, how do, I I can only imagine how furious you and amazed you must have been that not only were you getting knocked off. It was by somebody that you did business with and that was two doors down from you. And he was one of those guys who, I, I won't say the religion, but he hid behind his dogma and he said, hey, I'm, I'm one of these good people and I'm a good guy. And I met his dad and his wife and all their kids and everything. And man, it just was a kick to the gut. I tell you, it was really hard. And I think that because it was so close to home and it was so early on that sort of every other knockoff was less of a gut punch. It was easier to deal with. And of course, watching the attorneys deal with it, which is not what I wanted to do. I did not want to have to pay attorneys to go have to do this sort of thing. And that wrapped up a lot of free cash that we would have been otherwise better spending towards bottles. Um, But yeah, letting the attorneys deal with it was one way for me to separate church and state from myself. Whereas like, Travis, this is not your job anymore. This is now theirs. They are dealing with that aspect. You deal with all of the other things you do. So that's how I was okay with it, was able to sleep with it. That's probably smart. How are they getting around the patents though? Didn't you? They just flat out weren't. (laughs) They were just battle ramming right through the front door and just going right out. And they're in, and what's interesting is that now that we're, we're over a decade on, um, there and I absolutely positively do not want to speak for Helena Troy, the new owner, but there are ways that Helena Troy is there. They just this week they just broke two billion dollars in sales, and they know what they're doing, and, and they have a long term game plan in mind. And I've seen them be very successful with some of the would be competitor knockoffs, but a, a lot of the patents, unfortunately, at least at that time, were design patents. And design patents, I'm no attorney, but it's about 30% different, and you can do it on your own. You, you take something, you, you tweak it a little bit taller, a little bit wider, a little bit shorter, a little bit more, a little bit less. 30% is not a lot, and now you can get your own patent. Yeah, I think I've heard that from Stephen Key with InventRight. Yes, yeah, Stephen's isn't he great? Yeah, he he, uh, he is, yeah. Just from the marketing angle, how did you grow Hydroflask? 
it was a lot of guerrilla marketing. And at, at that time, the way that, that I and we grew Hydro Flask isn't necessarily the same way that I am and we are growing businesses today. But back then, it was a lot of trade shows. It was a lot of guerrilla marketing, meaning hats, stickers, t-shirts, banners. A lot of the things I learned at the, the sign company in Oahu. There was a lot of t-shirt companies in Oahu, and they were all trying to be the best and the biggest and the greatest and the, make the biggest mark on, on uh, society. So I, I picked up a lot of guerrilla marketing techniques in Oahu. And I would literally would show up at a, a trade show, and I would get all of the security Hydroflask t-shirts. And I would give them four free t-shirts for four days of trade show. And they would wear them. <laughs> In fact, we got to the point where we would print security on the front and Hydroflask on the uh, shoulder and then Hydroflask and security on the back. And they would wear them. And so everybody thought we were uh, sponsoring the, the event. And then also in, in giving out free water bottles. That was one of the best ways to market because they literally were selling themselves. Nobody had ever seen such a thing before. And it only took a, a day or two of drinking water before people would start feeling much better physically, mentally, emotionally, every other way. And so after two or three days, they would be hooked and they'd come back for more for themselves or their families. And we would always say that they were the number one most stolen product in most people's homes because a spouse or a sibling would steal one of anybody else's and then come to us and they would tell us their story, how their sister or their brother or their husband stole their bottle and now they needed their own. And word of mouth, I, I really felt if we can get Bend, Oregon, which was a very small quiet town back then. If we could get Bend to drink out of Hydroflask, maybe we could get Oregon. And if we get Oregon, perhaps we could get the Northwest. And if we get the Northwest, possibly the West Coast. And what we found was that the sales reps were also a very big part of our growth as well. The sales reps all around the world. We had sales reps in, in, in the far reaches of the planet. And we would get them t-shirts and hats and stickers and they would get more orders and we would get them more free bottles for samples for owners of businesses and we'd get more orders. And so it was, we had a really good product and we were just good people doing good things. And lifetime warranty was another thing that was a big help for whatever reason. If you weren't happy with the product, bring it back and, and we'll get you a new one or send it in. And a lot of people told me I was crazy and I don't know that they really do that anymore, at least not how we used to do it. But people thought that they're just going to buy one and then they'll never buy a second one. They'll just get it for free. That proved to not be quite accurate. People would come back and buy 10 or 15 more. <laughs> so, Yeah, because they were evangelizing basically and they're just such a great idea. So what are some of the mistakes that you wish you could have avoided? I would say I try not to really dwell on my mistakes. I, I know I've made a lot of mistakes over the past. I know I've made a lot. I just don't really retain them very much, Craig. I, I don't, I think there's a part of me that thinks I could have maybe stayed on another four years and, and waited till the Helena Troy exit, which would have been big or, but at the same time, I don't know that I had another four years in me. I was burnt out and the season was over. And so I, I don't really dwell on that much. I think maybe not keeping in contact with some of the employees. We were really a, a close tight knit family until the day I, I announced I was selling. And then literally the very next day I was not there and I never saw them again. And that, that hurts actually is all of the friends that I'd had there and in the industry and all over the country on Wednesday and then on Friday, that was all cut off and gone. So I think that might be one of the biggest ones. I'm sure they would still love to hear from you, though. I, I don't know. I, I have mixed emotions. I don't know what they think. or I, 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 Part of me thinks yes, and part of me thinks, why haven't they reached out? So I don't know. It's alienating, and it's isolating, and it's also because I was the boss. I was the owner. I was the man in charge. And we'd have Christmas parties, and I couldn't quite partake like I would if I wasn't the boss. And I couldn't quite get as close to them if I wasn't the, the owner. And so... 
yeah, it's kind of one of those bittersweet pills. Okay. I was going to ask what prompted you or how you knew it was time to sell Hydroflask, but it sounded like you were just, there was an offer and you were, it was just the right time to, to take it. You were a little bit burnt out. Is that fair to say? Yeah, pretty close. I, I had, my brother had just died. There was quite a few frivolous lawsuits flying around. That was another thing that I didn't realize. I didn't really read in any of my books that the bigger you get, the more people want to throw rocks at you and and people will want to sue for a, a multitude of reasons, whether it's legit or not. And so I was going through all that. My brother had just died. I had just gotten married. And I was on my honeymoon in, or the honeymoon, the second marriage type thing. My wife was British. And so we were out in Europe and we were in, in the Louvre in Paris and I saw a hydro flask. And that was always one of the, one of the early days when we, before we had even a hundred bottles sold, we always said that it'd be really neat to find a bottle out in the wild somewhere. And that would be when we knew that we were we had made it. We were established and we were a legit brand. And so when I saw that bottle in Paris at the Louvre, I was, I, I, it was like the whole thing just came to it together. And it was like, okay, I, I now have closure. I feel like this chapter is wrapping up here fairly quickly. And I got home and just a bunch more growth related, stupid stuff and difficult stuff. And uh, it just, it, it got a little bit mundane. I, I had an office job and I was sitting in the office quite a bit, 60 to 80 hours a week. And I was ready to just go do something else. The, the season had ended. I can understand that. So you, you, you exited, you took a little bit of time off and I imagine you probably thought you'd stay retired. What kind of you know, prompted you to start the Tumblr group? It was a multitude of reasons. Part of it was I wanted to help people. That's really the biggest part that I really enjoy growing businesses. I enjoy watching a little something grow into a really huge, massive something. And I wanted to get back into it, but not necessarily do it on my own. And I didn't really want to start my own brand and have to have a bunch of employees and and attorneys and all that goes parking spots and 401ks and HR people and all that goes into having the business. But I wanted to still be in that realm or that arena. And so with the Tumalo Group, that's exactly what I've been able to do. I've been able to enjoy the growth and help propel growth for a lot of companies, but I don't have to sign paychecks and I don't have to deal with HR and I don't have to deal with the employment tax. So, <laughs> yeah. So y'all are basically, this is probably a poor analogy, but kind of it's kind of being Shark Tank, but without ownership. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it does happen where one of my clients and I will, will get along real well and they'll say, Hey, why don't you come in and and come a little closer and we'll give you a little bit more and we'll figure something out. But for the most part, it's four month contracts. And at the end of the four months, we're good friends and they call me all the time and and we chit chat at the end of four months, it's a new day. So, yeah. So the four months is that covers it. The invent, source, manufacture, profit phase? Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Uh-huh. So you, somebody can have a, a prototype, basically, and be, be selling on Amazon in, in four months' time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. People come to us at the Tumalo Group with ideas, literally drawn out on a napkin. And we've got industrial, we've got really good industrial designers and people to draw up those ideas. And then we can take it into the design for manufacturing stage at a factory. So we find factories that are the best fit and we find a good minimum order quantity MOQ at a good price and a good turnaround time. And we can take a product and and get it into the machine getting made. Typically, the molds take about 30 to 45 days. Some take 60, depending on how big the mold is. The mold is basically what you pour metal or plastic or anything into. Even clothing has a mold sometimes that it needs. So once that's made, we're about two months in and then about a month for production and about a month on the water. And about four months later, we, we can get products into the fulfillment centers and out to the client, the customers. 
Okay. So how does a client finance doing that? Do they offer a, a percentage of the profits, a potential ownership, or is it a straight fixed fee? Typically, it's a straight fixed fee with the Tumalo Group. Every once in a while, I may do some equity here and there for help. But as far as financing the, the actual widgets and prod, products, I, I try not to get too much involved into that. I don't really, I, I just found it's a church and state separation thing that I like to keep where I personally don't finance the products or the manufacturing. Every once in a while, there might be a reason why I'll kick in a little bit, but for the most part, they need to be self-funded, angels, friends, family, whatever stage they are. A lot of our clients will come in and they'll get the prototypes made, they'll find out the costing, they'll find out the minimum order quantity, things like that. And then they will use that information to go out to like Kickstarter or crowdfunding, GoFundMe pages, and we'll give them enough to go out to go raise enough to buy the minimum order quantity. And then from that minimum order quantity, typically the sales off of that are uh, enough to fund, get the ball rolling. Gotcha. Okay. But backing up just a little bit, assuming that the client is willing to fund their own manufacturing and the shipping, et cetera, do they contract, they contract through the Tumalo group? Yes. Yeah. We say that it's, I like, I've always, not always, but the last probably five years or so, it's been quite accurate that it's about 75 to a hundred thousand dollars to get a brand or a business going. And I've talked to a number of people who we, we're in the same boat and we find that that's about a pretty accurate, fair number. By the time you have shipping and marketing and logistics and sales and, 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 it adds up pretty quick. Molds can be fairly expensive. They can be thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for molds, depending on how many you need and how big they are. And then, so yeah, that's, it's not all up front at once. And again, a lot of people have started for a lot less than that. We have some people who've started for 10 or 15,000 because all they're doing is getting a sample made and they're taking that sample out to go make $400,000 and then they come back and then they've got a good, uh, good ROI on that. Okay. So a lot of times they may not even have a prototype. They've just got a napkin drawing or a a concept. Correct. Yeah. Most of the time, my clients do not have a prototype and we help to get them a prototype. And it depends. It's not always uh, possible to do a prototype. Sometimes you have to build the molds in order to have the actual prototype. But other times we can 3D print a a fairly fair income rendition that is close enough for uh, TV to go on the internet and go out and, and raise some capital. A lot of people use those prototypes to raise money. It's a lot easier to raise capital with a prototype, it, even a looks like prototype. It doesn't necessarily have to be a looks like, acts like, but even just a looks sometimes can be enough to help raise cash. Okay. Now, do you all ever just get some somebody that is convinced that their idea is a hundred percent it'll sell and you just have to tell them that I'm sorry, this is not the right one. Yeah, I do. I do sometimes, which is not something I enjoy. And it's really not like, I don't know why it's even my place to do that, but I do have a lot of people who come to me um, with ideas and a lot of them are really good ideas. A lot of them are going to take several million dollars to launch. Some of them are really good ideas, but they probably are about, five, 10 years too early. They need to wait maybe a second. We're just not quite prepared yet. And then unfortunately, a very small few. In fact, I have one I can really remember. She came and she was on her last last leg and she was uh, very, she was a bit hopeless. And the only hope that she had was on her widget being the best widget on the market. Unfortunately, she compared herself to some celebrity who was doing a similar product and she thought her product was better than the celebrities. And so therefore her rationale was the celebrities making those many billions. I should be able to make at least that many, if not more, because my product's better. That that was tough. It's really hard when people say that they, they don't have any money and they don't have anything left except hope in a product and that product is possibly probably not going to be their savings grace yeah i can imagine that would not be a fun conversation 
So it's 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 I it's one of those things where I remember exactly where I was sitting when I was talking to her, and I remember hanging up, and I remember looking out the window, thinking, "Dang, like I didn't sign up for that. That's not something I wanted to do." But it comes with the territory. I've learned I got to take the good with the bad. So if that's the bad, then I'm doing okay. And hopefully, she went on to go get a job and, and do something completely different, and maybe has a new idea now. I don't know. Yeah. What industries uh, does the Tumalo Group support or target it that the is, customers go to? Go to. It is a wide array, Greg. I have a client right now who's doing wooden boxes for a wine company called Box. And so we're making wood boxes. I have another company who's making a, a mouse pad. Another company who's doing... Those are a, still a thing? It's, I, and this was my question too. It's really... And I don't want to give away too many secrets because we're under NDA and it hasn't launched yet. But it's a way that... It's not an actual mouse pad, but it's a way that it's a wrist pad which is for a mouse which is it's for the gaming industry and so it's a new product that i hadn't i don't do gaming so i didn't know anything about it but it's taken off like wildfire and who else do we work with obviously i have a lot of bottle companies that that still come to me and want my advice and opinion on things and sometimes i can help and other times it's too close to ndas that i have with others and i can't really go there who else have a guy who's doing a light meter to so you can see where plants get the most optimal light so you can grow better plants and on and on i've had a waffle maker I've had a blender, I mean, not a blender, I'm sorry, a coffee maker, all just all kinds of crazy things that people are coming up with that are better than the, the rest. And so therefore, there they go. Okay. So do you ever advise somebody to not do it themselves and to pursue a licensing agreement? That's another thing that a lot of people who find me either find me through Stephen Key and his program. I was on one of those podcasts or video vlogs they do go hand in hand um i have there's a client actually right now who has a really neat uh widget that he's a a student of stephen key and he is torn between licensing and doing it himself and so with that what we do is we really complement the licensing as well getting a sample prototype finding a factory, finding out what it costs and what the minimum order quantities are. That's a lot of knowledge that potential license E could go to the license or with. And so if you go in to negotiate and you say, here's my product, will you please buy it? And they say, no, it's going to cost us $50 to make it. We won't make any money. We don't want your idea. We'll give you a dollar each. And you can sit there and say, no, actually, there's a Chinese factory and I know exactly where it is and they're going to do it for $37. And uh, so therefore, if you guys are paying 50, I can get you a $37 factory. That's that's very powerful. And I've heard a number of times where that kind of information will be enough to take to the signature round. Okay. That's something I had not considered before. So... You and, and licensing has a lot of a lot of potential. I, I think it's a great idea, and I think there are those who do it really well. I think it's just like any other business, though. You need to really study and learn and know that there's if there's a hundred people, not all hundred are going to make it. There's the Pareto principle where eighty are probably going to fail and twenty are going to make it. But if you're one of those 20, it could be a good deal. I I had another guy who he was ahead of his time. This is a good story. Greg. This guy came to me in 2019, just mid to late 2019. And he had a product for a hoodie that had a mask on it to keep you warm was the idea to keep your face warm. And companies were telling him no, left and right and left and right. And nobody needed that. And that was a stupid idea. 2020 rolled around and guess what happened? <laughs> Everybody wow. wanted a hoodie with a mask on and boom, he just took right off. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I think I remember watching shark tank and there was a lady that was presenting personalized masks, surgical masks, and she didn't get a deal when she was too huh. early. Uh, this yeah. was like 20, 2017. Uh, Who knew? Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So you mentioned boxed. What have been some of the the other successes for the tumbleogre? Boxed was a big one. It is a big one. We've got others that I just I kind of keep a little quiet on because not all of them want to give credit where credit is due. They want to keep it inside. But I've worked with a number of very large brands and companies helping to find new product factories behind the scenes type of stuff. And that's where a lot of, a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, I'd say a, a portion of our businesses is just helping businesses transition from their factory over to our factory and keeping it as quiet and below the radar as possible. Because anytime you have a disruption in your supply chain, your customers and your clients may get a little bit hesitant or reluctant. Is the quality going to be the same? Is it going to be worse quality? Am I not going to be able to get my products for a while? And so we keep it a little bit quiet. Okay. Now this country basically gave away manufacturing in the 80s. And where I'm from, we see a lot of old mills that are just dilapidated, not in use. Do you do you ever see any of that coming back? Do you, you know with the some of the th- stuff going on with China? You know, not to get too political, but I think we were really on our way up until January. I think that reversed, and we're now going leaning more back towards China, which is. It is what it is. I think that even before China, we had Korea, we had Japan, we had Taiwan, we had Mexico. And as a capitalistic free nation that we're in, we're going to go to where it's cheapest to manufacture. And so we've been doing that, whether it's I live in this town, but I manufacture in that town. We've been doing that forever. We just so happen to be with China right now. But again, before China, we had Korea and Japan and Mexico and everywhere else. China does a really good job of manufacturing. They have their manufacturing dialed so well. And they do an exceptionally brilliant job most of the time. There are times where, uh, at least the factories we work with, I don't work with the -the run-of-the-mill Alibaba factories. And I do not recommend people use those because... You're going to get what you pay for and you're going, it's just like anything else. If you don't know who you're working with and you don't know what you're paying for, you don't know what you're going to get. That's not a good success formula. I think that it would be wonderful if we can start bringing manufacturing back home to the States. And we were so damn close. We were like, it felt like we were just minutes away from having American made products once again. And then it changed in about January. And when it changed in January, we went right back across the pond. And now it's like, I just to tell a personal story, I went down to buy a trailer and there were no trailers. I said, where are all the trailers? And the guy said, they're not making them. I said, why? They can't get the metal or what? Why? What? Where is the hiccup in the supply chain? And he says, it's the humans. The humans are sitting on the couch watching Netflix, collecting unemployment. And they don't want to go to work. They don't want to make trailers anymore. So I know a factory in in China that's going to make me trailers all day long because they want to work. And he said, yeah, honestly, that's the best thing to do right now is to go to China because you're not going to get one from America, not anytime soon. And it's so frustrating because, like I said, I was we were close. We were so darn close to opening up factories all across the country with so many different things going on because those tariffs, a 25% tariff on steel, that really made people stop and think, do I want to move to Thailand or do I want to move to XYZ country or do I want to just bring it in house, charge 20, 30% more and say, yep, we're an American made company. And and people were ready to bring it in house. And I, I think we got set back a bit on that. Yeah, I think we did too. The China is just current, the current bad guy, but the real ultimate, the ultimate bad guy, it was NAFTA that flushed the jobs right out of the, out of America. It did. It did. And I don't blame China in the least bit. They're taking advantage of the opportunity just like anybody else would. And I really do. And I've seen this for years when I first started going to China America needs, and I'll say America, but, and I won't speak for any other country, but we need a a bad guy. We need a villain. We need somebody who we can throw rocks at and say, oh, it's not us. It's them. 
Oh, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. They did that. And China is that country right now. Who's going to be next? I don't know. It might be we might move over to Africa. We might move to Detroit. Who knows? But it might be South America. But for right now, man, they've got their labor force and they've got their robots and they've got their quality control and they've got their shipping and logistics dialed. Unlike anybody else on this planet does. And it, it, and just the infrastructure, having the highways to transport from the factory to the port is huge. You can have the best factory in the whole country, but if you don't have the roads to get out and the roads are impassable six months a year, or if the power goes off every third day for five hours, you just can't have a, an established production facility in some of these countries just yet. They're still too far behind. Well, I guess it. Almost takes us to wrapping it up. Do you ever plan on retiring? No, gosh, no. I, I, I would, I, no. <laughs> no. I have too much fun. I have way too much. I take my retirement in, in increments, honestly. And this is, I found when I was I, fresh out of high school, I was 18. And working in the Virgin Islands, it was very busy throughout the wintertime. And in the summertime, it was so low. And there was no money. The crime rate would go up. There was no food, no water, no money. And that's when I would travel and I'd go and spend my money from the wintertime. And so I've gone in these, you know, anywhere from four month to four year cycles of work real hard and then take a lot of time off and then work real hard and take time off. And and now I've I, I found a, a way to work real hard, probably anywhere from two to four hours a day. And then I had the rest of the day off to play with my daughter and go build swimming pools. Nice. Hopefully nice. It can't, I don't want to jinx it, but how hard can it be? But Oh man, yeah. <laughs> you've jinxed it. <laughs> I, I totally have. Yeah. I'm going to have to hire somebody now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understand getting it level is a very big deal. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about that. I had a hole dug for a trampoline. I'm going to sink a trampoline down and I think I'm going to, I'm going to sink the swimming pool too. And then I'll let those guys be in charge of the level. (laughs) There there you go. What's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? I would say, please just go out and do it. The world needs entrepreneurs. We need people to stand up and try We need people to save this planet and make our lives easier, and we need to make our lives better. And a lot of ways we can do that is with entrepreneurial help. I I really firmly believe that tomorrow's inventions are out there today listening to this right now. And we need people to just stand up and take a risk. It's not easy. It's not fun all the time. And it's not for everybody. But if you have a calling to be an entrepreneur, please, by all means, stand up. We need you. Okay. What's the best way for people to check you out and get in touch with? Usually just sending me an email, Travis at TumaloGroup.com, T-U-M-A-L-O-G-R-O-U-P.com is about the best way. I'm also on LinkedIn, although my LinkedIn box gets really full. Um, a lot of well-wishers and a lot of people looking for help and advice and business. And, and unfortunately, that gets a little bit backed up. So I'd say just a direct email and we can take it from there. All right. That's a wrap. Thank you, Travis, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. Now, I had a great time talking to Travis, as you could probably tell. But I also learned a lot. Like Travis said about digging his pool. When you have the right tools or equipment for a job, it's quick, easy, and a lot of fun. When you don't, it's challenging. He learned from watching his mom run her daycare business that there is a fine line between going the extra mile to take care of your customers and also saying, hey, enough's enough when the said customers are taking advantage of you. Travis is quick to credit a lot of his success to the motivational books that he read by such greats as Brian Tracy Zig Ziglar, Dale Carnegie, and others. Travis found out early on in his first business that he didn't like profiting on others' misfortunes. And he doesn't recommend that type of business for anyone else as it can be soul-sucking. Pivoting, he started a fencing company, despite not knowing anything about fencing. He quickly learned that everything is figure-outable, which seems to be a common theme among successful entrepreneurs such as Aaron Walker said in episode 2. 
Hydroflask kind of came together as a result of his prior business experience, some unique institutional knowledge that he had, and he saw the need for an improved product that was BPA-free and would keep hot liquid hot and cold liquid cold. Now, Travis didn't realize that he could become too successful too quickly, especially with the physical product. He was having to float the cost of manufacturing, and then he wouldn't see the, the cash flow back in until 9 to 120 days later which almost put him out of business. Travis had several guerrilla marketing tactics that he employed. He and other employees would go into stores asking for their product to create a perceived demand, and eventually the stores would contact his company, placing an order. He also provided security crews t-shirts at events that would make it seem like Hydroflask was sponsoring them. The Hydroflask warranty, however, was probably one of the company's greatest selling points, as they offered a lifetime warranty. Like Stephen Key in episode 3 said, his competitors knocked off Hydroflask legally by making their designs about 30% different. Now Travis tries not to dwell on his mistakes and just learn from them and move on. Travis started the Tumalo Group to both get back into the game of creating new products and brands, but also to help people as well. The Tumalo Group can get a product launched from idea to completion in four months' time. It takes around 30 to 60 days to get the product's molds created, another 30 days to get it manufactured, and another month to get it into the fulfillment centers. Travis said that it takes around seventy-five dollars to $100,000 to get a brand or business going. A lot of his clients use their services to build a prototype and gather information to go start a successful crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter or pursue a licensing deal with an existing company. Travis said that the world needs more entrepreneurs to both make life better and help save the planet. His advice, to paraphrase from another Oregon-based company, is if you're thinking about making the leap, to just do it. Now, Travis can be reached at travis at tumalogroup.com. If you have a product or business idea and are stuck, I highly recommend reaching out to Travis and the Tumlo Group to see what they can do to move you forward. Now, next week, we'll have Bill Soroka on talking about how he overcame 26, yeah, you heard me right, 26 business failures to finally find success as a notary influencer. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.